Welcome to the Grace Life Church podcast. My name is Parker Smith, lead pastor of Grace Life Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you to the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. have your Bible, I would encourage you to open with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We are working through the Lord's Prayer this morning, going to continue doing that. I want to say again a word of welcome to our guests. Uh, we're delighted that you're here with us, worshiping with us this morning. We are, as I said, going through the Lord's Prayer. We are in part four of a five-part series, and then we'll take just a week off, and then we will jump into what will be kind of the normal rhythm of Grace Life, working through books of the Bible. And we will start in the book of Philippians, Lord willing, uh, probably middle of February. And so uh, be in prayer for that. Um, But in this series thus far, we've seen just a few phrases that we've camped out on. And beginning in this way, calling God our Father is a petition of signing on to the 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 commission of God to the uh, to the plan of God to the will of God and it's us saying we want to be obedient to you as our father we want to be like an apprentice son and we want to follow you wherever it is that you would lead us and so we then continued into thy kingdom come and that Jesus is seeing his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and we want to pray to that end and we've seen that fulfilled in Christ. And then last week, we saw that give us this day, our daily bread is not a prayer of selfishness, but and it's also not that our prayers need to be annihilated when we want to pray for specific things, but rather it's not that they need to be annihilated, but they need to be aligned with God's God's kingdom and God's will and God's desire for his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And ultimately that our prayer for daily bread is a prayer for Christ. This is a prayer for more of Christ, and it is to see the banquet of God to continue. And we said that all are invited and all are welcome to come to that table and to feast on the bread of life. And so if you're the careful observer, will notice that I may have skipped over really a prime phrase in this prayer, and I did that intentionally. So I'm going to speak this week on the Lord's Prayer to deliver us from evil And I'm going to come back next week and I'm going to speak on forgive us our trespasses. And the reason that I'm doing that is because if you notice at the end of the Lord's Prayer, he jumps back into the theme of forgiveness. And so I'm going to do that intentionally. And so this morning we're going to look at deliver us from evil. And I invite you to stand out of the honor and reverence of the reading of God's word. Would you stand as we read together from Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't eat up empty, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe that, would you say amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, 
We pray that you would give us eyes to see and that you would give us ears to hear. That your spirit would illumine our hearts, would illumine our eyes, would illumine our ears to receive the truth of your word this morning. We pray that above all that we would see Christ and his glorious redemption of sinners. Father, would you help us not to just merely hear your word, but to believe it in faith. And not just merely to receive your word, but to be changed by your Spirit's work in our hearts and our lives. And may we walk out of this place different than when we came in. Father, that is a work that only you can do. It is a work that cannot be accomplished in our flesh. And so, Father, we say we need your help. And would you speak for your servants are listening. Amen. You may be seated this morning. As we sang that song this morning, that it is well with my soul, that when sorrows like sea billows roll, I can say that it is well with my soul. You know that I love music. I love to sing music. I love to listen to music. And there's a song that's often contained and contains the truth of the passage that we are often studying. And this one, I would say, would be the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It goes like this. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy dream and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy darkness street shineth the everlasting light. And here's the line. The hopes and fears of all our years are met in thee tonight. We live in a tension in this world that I believe it was Horatio Spafford that wrote, It is well with my soul. Yet we live in that tension when sorrows like sea billows roll, yet also looking for an anticipation of hope. And the same is true and is contained therein of O Little Town of Bethlehem, of the hopes and fears of all our years are found in Christ and they are resolved in the person of Christ. And it's very often neglected to think about this truth that in the birth narrative of Christ and when Christ was coming into the world, that same tension was lying in the hearts of both Mary and Joseph. This was not an easy journey. This was not a journey that one would like to partake in and only to find out that the child that you were bearing for Mary was also the Messiah of the world. And to boot on top of that, to arrive at your destination on this very hard and difficult and dangerous journey only to show up to the inn that you were to stay in and realize that the travel agency double booked the room. Now what do you do? And in the midst of great uncertainty, in the midst of great fear, and I'm sure in Mary's mind she was thinking, this was not supposed to happen in this way. And now what do we do? The anticipation, the fear, the anxiety, the trouble that she had, Mary no doubt knew what it was like to be in that place of having great fear on one side and great anxiety and great uncertainty, yet also knowing who she would soon deliver into the world of great hope and anticipation. 
And that is the same truth that we live in as well. And that's why we read this morning from Psalm 130 that the darkness often comes before the dawn and midnight happens before the morning comes. This is the Christian life, is it not? This is the Christian life that you live in. This is the Christian life that we live in. This is the reality of God that through the midst of our hurting and our pain and our suffering and even in the midst of evil, God begins to birth something good from the midst of our pain. And that was the same reality of our Savior who had literally a sentence of death placed over Him. And three days later, rose victorious over sin, death, in the grave. You've lived this Christian life long enough. You lived in this life long enough to know that you don't have to live very long until you experience tragedy, until you experience pain, until you experience suffering. And we all in those moments long for hope, long for joy, long for peace. This is the Christian life. And so it's very fitting and it's not surprising that Jesus would teach his disciples to pray in this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from this evil that we so often see and experience in our world. And the truth that we'll find in this truth, beloved, is that our hope and that our deliverance has to be and is anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is found in the true life of Jesus, and it is wrapped in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And the hopes and fears of all of our years finds peace because of what Christ has done. That was certainly true, point number one, for the life of Israel. Israel, you see this expectation of the same pattern of pressure and pain and then hope bursting forth. That from ashes there will become beauty. That things would often get worse and darker. And then from the chaos and from the darkness, there would come light. I know of no better place to point you to show you the dark, dark darkness and the hope of the people of Israel than the book of Hosea. If you know the story of the book of Hosea, it is portraying Israel's unfaithfulness against the Lord. And it is a dark picture of Israel's sin and wickedness. And I just want to capture the latter portion of the book of Hosea very quickly in Hosea chapter 9. The prophet says this, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wage and on the threshing floor. In other words, Israel has committed spiritual adultery against the Lord. They have forsaken the true Lord their God, and they've gone after foreign gods, and they've gone after false gods. They've gone after false idols. Verse 5 of chapter 9. What will you do then on the day of appointed festivals, on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of his spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. He continues in the next chapter in Hosea 10, verse 2. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? 
They utter mere words with empty oaths and they take covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Hosea painting this picture of Israel's rebellion against God, Israel's sin against God, Israel's destruction because of their forsaking of the covenant and their forsaking of the one true God going after false idols and false gods. They're turning their backs on the Lord. And because of that, God declares to them they will suffer. They will suffer because of their sin. And then Hosea chapter 11 one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, maybe even all the Bible, paints to us and paints for us this beautiful picture of hope in the midst of Israel's pain, in the midst of Israel's suffering. God says to them through the prophet Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called, the more... They went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and kept burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Speaking of the Babylonian captivity, because they have refused to listen to me. That is the despair of Israel. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent toward turning away from me. And though they called out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. And in the midst of Israel's hopelessness, in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their calamity, in the midst of that tension, when sorrows like sea billows roll, hear the word of the Lord from Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zebuim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger and I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God declaring that in the midst of their great sin, in the midst of their utter destruction, that they deserve to be condemned, God gives to them a great message of hope. And the great God of mercy extends to them compassion and extends to them grace. And this was the tension of the people of Israel. That they saw their sin for what it was. That they saw the sin of their destruction and all that they deserved before God. Yet they cling to the day that God would come and deliver them. And this is why in the book of Acts, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it this time that we will see the hope of Israel's people be finally coming through Christ? Will you restore the kingdom to them? Yet what we see in that moment and what we see in the New Testament is that God was working on a grander scale than just the redemption of an ethnic people. God was working for the redemption of a true Israel. God was working for the redemption of a spiritual Israel. 
Not an ethnic people, but a spiritual people by faith, who by faith put their trust in Christ. And in faith, they find hope in a deliverer. And that our hope, our hope, beloved, and our mercy that we receive and our salvation is found in Christ. And that we too, just like ethnic Israel lived in this pattern of great destruction and great tribulation, we too look for a coming hope. Because we too were sinners. We too turned our back on the Lord. We too went astray and, and, and worshiped false gods and false idols and would rather have false gods than the true God. We too live in this tension of despair but also hope. We too were sinful and we needed a Redeemer to give us hope. And that Redeemer is Christ. And this theme that you see of the pattern in the life of Israel is the same pattern that we live in as well. That in the midst of great darkness, it is followed by great hope because of what Jesus has done. That was true of the anticipation of ethnic Israel, but it's all the more true of the anticipation of a spiritual Israel, a people of faith who look to the Lord for their deliverance. But point number two, this was also the pattern of the life of Jesus. Look in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30. Really just 28, really just 28. But also keep your thumb on Matthew 26, verse 41. And Jesus tells his disciples to pray that we would be led not into temptation. The word there for temptation is the word that means to be trialed or to be tried or to be tested. Jesus, as you know, lived a life of pressure and pain even in the midst in his earthly ministry beginning, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested, to be tempted by Satan. And everywhere that he went, Jesus faced opposition. He was yelled at, he was ridiculed, he was mocked. And, and drawing near to the end of his life, he says to his disciples in Luke chapter 22, he turns to them and says, he says, you are those who stayed with me in my trials. Jesus knows that his life was a life of adversity. His life was a life that was filled with all types of, of pain and suffering. This is why the prophet Isaiah says that he was a man of sorrow. He was very acquainted with grief. And in Matthew 26, verse 41, you see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and refusing to take the easy road. He's agonizing in pain. This was a lonely and dark night for him. And he's about to be stretched out and hung on a cross. This was the dark night of the soul. And here is Jesus in Matthew 26 at the height of evil surrounding him, at the height of his life and mission and ministry. This was the utter darkness before the dawn would come. This was attesting. And evil was all around Jesus. Evil was pursuing him and coming after him. They were coming after his disciples. And Jesus turns to his disciples in Matthew 26, 41. And he says, I want you to remember to pray like I taught you to pray. And so he says to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus is saying to his followers that let this not be a testing for you. Let this not turn into a great tribulation, but instead pray that you would be delivered from the evil one. And Jesus says to his disciples that this is going to be a test. 
You're going to think that evil has won. You're about to see the climax of evil right in front of you. Sinful man is about to crucify their maker. You're going to think that that evil has conquered, that darkness is victorious. You're going to be tempted to think that this whole thing is over. And so I want you to pray that you would not be tested in that way. Pray that you would be delivered from the evil one. And lead us not into temptation, but God, would you deliver us from evil? But as we know, Jesus himself was not delivered from evil. And if this is a prayer of Christ, and I believe it was a model prayer, but if this was a true prayer of Christ, don't miss this. The answer to Jesus that he received from his father was no. If this was a prayer of Christ, deliver me from evil, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, his father said to him, no. That is not the way. And so Jesus understands that and he knows. And so in Matthew 26, verse 42, does he say again for the second time he went away and he says, my father if this cannot pass from me unless, unless I drink it, nevertheless, your will be done. And Jesus sees great evil and great suffering, and he would take on that role of being crushed, and he would not be delivered from evil so that he could deliver us from evil. And he turns to his disciples and he says, I want you to pray to that end. I want you to pray that you would not be led into temptation, but that you would be delivered from evil. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to be delivered from evil. All the evil of the world is going to be thrown upon me and thrown at me. And I will be victorious over that evil so that I can in turn deliver you from evil and the evil one. And so pray that I would be victorious for what God has called me to do. Pray that I would succeed in the mission of my Father. Pray that I would succeed so that when you pray this prayer, you can pray this prayer in confidence that Christ is victorious. We even see within this text that an appropriate response to evil, of what what we do with evil, there's a few wrong responses I think that we could come up with. One would be that we just put our head in the sand and we act like evil doesn't exist and we act like it doesn't matter. Don't worry, it'll all just work itself out. Another approach is that we just wallow in evil and so, well, their evil is out there and so there's nothing we can do about it, so we might as well just give in. A third response would be self-righteousness. They would say, yes, there's a lot of evil out in this world, but thank the Lord I'm not evil. There's nothing evil about me. That's all out there. Yet Jesus knows that none of these responses are correct. And he doesn't want his followers to buy into them. Rather, he would rather his followers know and recognize the reality and the power of evil, but also be comforted by the reality and power of God, because God will be victorious over evil. God wants to remind us of of great truths this morning. The first is which, or point number three, is that evil is real. That I want you to know that evil is is real. 
This is a testing. This is a real testing. This is a real enemy. There is victory over the enemy to deliver us. This is real. He turns to Peter in Luke 22 and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Evil is real. The enemy is real. He wants to destroy your faith. You encounter evil and it's not a false evil. It is a real evil. But it's not just out there. It's also within every one of us. It's not just out in the world. It's also deeply embedded in our hearts. That we too are sinners. That we too are by our nature and by our choice sinners and rebels against God. We are rebels against the Holy One who is Christ. When we are born into this world with a heart that is bent not towards loving God, not towards being righteous, not towards being holy. In fact, we are born with a bent towards evil and an inclination towards sin. And we were born, as Scripture says, not as children of God, but we were children of wrath. This is why Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, verses 1-3, through 3, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And when she once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passage of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Beloved, evil is not just out there. Evil is in here. And apart from Christ and apart from the grace of God, the Apostle Paul would even say, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is a lot of sin sickness in our heart that needs to be redeemed, that needs to be restored, that needs to be, get this, conquered. And the fourth truth that we see this morning is that there is victory over that evil. And the victory over that evil is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this was not just a truth for 2,000 years ago. This wasn't just a truth that Jesus had for His followers in the first century. This is a truth that we need to capture and we need to take heart of today. That this is very present, this is very real in our lives. That we too have evil that must be conquered. And how is that evil conquered? Not just in the world, but also in our hearts and in our life as well. You were following the prince of the power of the air, and you were by nature children of wrath. What's the remedy? And thank the Lord, the Apostle Paul gives us the remedy in Ephesians chapter 2. He doesn't just leave us hanging. What's the remedy? You were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, He made you alive together with Christ. And it is by grace that you have been saved. And that through faith. And we have been raised up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. It is by grace, not by your words. And by faith and by the grace of God and the mercy of God, we turn away from that evil and see the deliverance of God and the hope of God that is in Jesus Christ. 
And when all of our hope seems lost, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, the Apostle Paul said he made us alive in Christ. In the midst of your utter despair, there's great hope because of what Jesus has done. The tension of despair and hope all find its harmony because Christ has delivered us from evil. He's delivered our hearts from evil. He's delivered our emotions, our thoughts, everything about us that was bent towards sin and rebellion against God. Now God has filled us with the presence of Christ and the spirit of Christ to live and dwell in us. And we live not as defeated foes living in sin, but we live to glorify our great Savior. And now we have hope when we once had despair. And now because of Christ, we live triumphant because of what Jesus has accomplished, because of the victory of the cross. And I want to stop for just a moment and to just implore anyone here this morning that has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ to just simply recognize this, that if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, then you're still in despair. You're still in sin. The wrath of God remains on you because you've not placed your faith in Christ. And I would implore you this morning to look to Jesus, to in the midst of your calamity, in the midst of your hopelessness, to cling to the only one that can give you hope and the only one that can save you, namely Jesus Christ. And we do that by repentance and faith to stop trusting in ourselves and to stop acting like we don't have issues and we don't have a problem. But to say, no, we have a major problem. And that problem is that one day we're going to face God on judgment day. And if God were to give me what I deserve on that great day of judgment, he'll condemn me. I'll be crushed because of my sin. Beloved, your only hope is found in Christ. So cling to Christ this morning. I implore you, I beg you. And even with tears, it's not anything I can do. And it's not anything your neighbor can do. It's only that which the Spirit of Christ can do. And so we must fall on our knees and on our face and cry out to God, God, would you save me? Would you deliver me from evil and the evil one? A few more points of application. This would also prepare us to engage in a battle for our faith. It's very odd that Jesus would teach his disciples to pray this way if there wasn't a real temptation, if there wasn't a real battle, if there wasn't a real testing. This is a fight for our faith. And we live in that fight of faith. It's odd unless evil is real and there's an enemy who desires to crush you. It's, it's odd that Jesus would ask us to pray this way if those things weren't true. Yet we see in the life of Christ that there is a real enemy. There's real evil. There's real hatred against the people of God. And we see in the life of Christ the model and the pattern of Jesus' life. We would be foolish to think that that pattern doesn't follow us as well. That is part of what it means to follow Jesus. It means to follow Him in the midst of suffering. 
Rather, we should pray then this way, that when we get to the point that feels like we're about to give up or we're about to give in, when we're about to reach the grand conclusion that, you know what, I think evil's won. There's no point in keep trying. There's no point in keep going. There is no hope. All hope seems lost. Everything seems like it's doom and gloom. That we would remember the prayer to say that even though I have been tested, God, that you will not fail, that you will deliver us from evil. And we're reminded of the words of Christ to keep watch and to pray that this might not sink our faith. For the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. And this is a prayer, beloved, that you cannot pray from a distance. You can't pray this prayer from a distance. No, this is the reality of the Christian life. This is day by day living by faith. This is you living your life in a battled, worn, and scarred heart. But your faith remains, even though you have been tested that your faith is not torn. Your faith is not defeated. This was the path of Christ. This is the path of His disciples. And this will also be the path for us as well. And it was certainly the path of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul lived a life of suffering, but yet clung to the hope of Christ, even when he came to faith in Acts chapter 9. He was greeted by Ananias, and Ananias comes to him and helps his health be restored and tends to Paul. And Ananias is told of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, but the Lord said to him, Go to him, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, speaking of the Apostle Paul, to carry my namesake before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show Paul, I will show him how much he is to suffer for my namesake. Paul's life would be a life marked with suffering. It would be a mark, marked by that of Christ that he writes in the book of Colossians that I rejoice that in my flesh, in my suffering for your sake, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Paul says, I know that my life is a life that is to be marked by suffering. And all types of evil and pain comes against me. Yet in the midst of that suffering, the Apostle Paul says this, my hope is not lost. And the reason my hope is not lost is not because my situation is difficult. It is. It's hard. It's very excruciating. It's very difficult. It's very painful. These are real tears. This is real pain. This is real sorrow that I'm feeling. But the Apostle Paul says my hope is not lost. And the reason my hope is not lost is because I look to a greater deliverer from this evil. And his name is Jesus Christ. And when hope seems lost, I know that there is a better hope that's coming. And when I'm tempted, Paul says, and when you're tempted, as you may say, when I'm tempted to give up, when I'm tempted to give in, that we would look not to our circumstances, but to, but to Christ and His cross and to know that He has delivered us from evil. And that when we're tempted, we would pray, God, would you deliver us from this evil world? And would you deliver the evil from my heart? In the midst of our suffering, the last passage we'll look at, you love it, I love it too. 
It's a great promise that we have in the book of Romans chapter 8 when Paul writes to the church at Rome. And he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longings for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope you were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. And we wait for it with patience. The Apostle Paul earnestly appealing to the church at Rome, to Christians in the local church in a very dark city where evil was rampant at the height likely of persecution of Nero. The Apostle Paul says, don't be in despair. Don't think that this utter darkness will be the end. Instead, hope in Christ. There is a better day coming and Jesus is inviting us when he says, I want you to pray in this way. I want you to pray that you would not be led into temptation, but God would deliver us from evil that we would be a people of great faith. That we would be a people that would stand in the midst and on the brink of great fear and adversity and see evil for what it is and say, I know that you're there. But I will not be afraid because my God is a God who delivers me and will deliver me and has delivered me. And one day he'll deliver this whole world. And so I will walk and I will stand and I will see all types of calamity, all types of suffering, all types of sorrow come. And when seas like billows roll in my life, I will not fear because Christ is triumphant. And Jesus is inviting us, beloved. He's inviting you, even in this day, to say, you be a people of faith that stands and looks right into the darkness and says, I will not fear, because my God is with me. I walk in the fiery furnace. I will stand in the lion's den, because my God is triumphant. He is victorious. And evil will not win. Temptation will not win. This testing will not win. No, God will deliver me. And in this world, oh, in this world, we may think it just seems pointless. All hope seems lost. And what we see is all we see is despair. Yet in the midst of that despair, Jesus says, I invite you to see hope. 
Out of the ashes, I pray that you see the beauty that God is making. Out of darkness, know that the light of Christ is shining. And out of fear, know that Christ is victorious. And out of sorrow, know that we see great joy. And out of the evil and the sin of this world and in our hearts comes a beautiful, beautiful Savior to redeem us and to save us. And it is to that end that we pray, God, help us not forget that we prayed that you would deliver us. And you have through Christ. And so, Father, may we live in the midst of this tension of great sorrow and in great pain, but oh, so much more hope because of Jesus. God, would you deliver us? Would you be reminded of us that you are victorious? You are our God, and you've delivered us from our sin and from our death, and Father, you will deliver us from this calamity as well. This is going to be a prayer that you need. You need to remember this prayer when you think evil's won, when you think there's no hope. You need to be reminded of this prayer God, don't let this sink my faith, but let it grow my faith. And may I look to you to deliver me from evil. For the person in this room, that may be that you need to place your faith in Christ today. That you've not received the redemption of Christ. That you have not experienced His transformation. And that's the redemption that you need. That's the hope that you need. You need the hope of Christ as your Savior. Some of you are walking through incredible difficult times right now. Incredible pain, incredible adversity, incredible difficulty. Sorrow upon sorrow. That's why Paul would say, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Do you need to be reminded of the victory of Christ in your life today? That Jesus is not going to allow evil to win. Do you need to cling to Christ? Do you need to come and lay your burdens down? Do you need to come and Say, God, deliver the evil from within me. Deliver the evil from around me. God, I'm looking to you to be victorious. May we pray to that end. Lead us not into temptation, but, oh God, would you deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about Grace Life Church, please email us at gracelifedecatur at gmail.com or find us on Facebook by searching Grace Life Church Decatur. And if you live in the Decatur area, we would love for you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until next time on the Grace Life Church podcast.